So let's talk a little bit about Theravada Buddhism. Uh, the word Theravada means teaching of the elders or the way of the elders. And the Theravada view, uh, view tends to be that they're the oldest form of Buddhism that's being practiced in uh, India, in uh, Sri Lanka, in a lot of the southeastern uh, parts of Asia. What we'll see typically here is how Buddhism spreads. So the Theravada sects, also called the Pali text, Pali canon text, sects, uh, tended to spread to the south and the southeast. And Mahayana Buddhism spread also to, to China and to uh, Vietnam, Korea, Japan, and it, and it changed also. But also uh, Mahayana moved to Mongolia and Tibet too. So anyway, the Theravada Buddhism is sometimes stereotyped as the lesser vehicle, some kind, sometimes called the Hinayana by the Mahayana Buddhists. And the Mahayana means greater vehicle. Um, this is, of course, a stereotype. And the Theravada also would uh, suggest that the Mahayana has taken Buddhism beyond what it actually, uh, the Buddha actually taught. So there's a lot of different contentions and conflicts between the various systems. Nevertheless, um, the Theravadins believe in the concept of direct experience, leads to nirvana. The Mahayana also believes this, but the Mahayana pays particular attention to this concept of the Buddha as being a bodhisattva, and we'll get into that soon. Uh, the term bodhi, uh, wisdom leads to a profound insight into the nature of reality. So that direct experience through meditation uh, leads a Buddhist into a profound insight into the nature of reality. That's a pretty good definition of wisdom, of ultimate wisdom, of seeing through reality, not physical reality. We're talking about a mental reality, something beyond the physical world some kind of insight into suffering that leads one to various forms of liberation. Uh, the Theravadan sects of Buddhism primarily focuses on the mon monastic life and the Sangha within the monastic life. So the Buddha established a community of monks who traveled around for food who could not, with their traveling bowl, they could not uh, feed themselves. They, they had to beg for food. Um, so this became a standard in the Theravadan sects. And you're supposed to, the, the monks wore, obviously, particular clothing. And they weren't allowed to have more than one set of clothing. The clothing itself is supposed to be, the robes are supposed to look, poor, like poverty, 
But if you see pictures of the Theravadan sects and also the various sects of Buddhism, they look kind of rich, like profound, like beautiful. But to be honest, they're supposed to be uh, a symbol of poverty. The sacred texts that the Theravadan uh, uses is the Tripitaka. The Tripitaka can be translated as the three baskets. And part of these texts are the Vinaya, I'm sorry, Vinaya. This is the conduct of the monks and nuns. Yes, there are nuns in the Theravadan sect. Um, and if you read the conduct, it basically focuses on what they can wear, what time they can eat, what they can and cannot do. It's a list of orders, commandments to follow, to reduce uh, the outside world, to reduce the material world, and to spend all the time that they can on the internal world of meditation. That's why there's so many rules for the monks and nuns. There are suttas, uh, that's the Pali in Sanskrit, it's called sutra. That's the discourses of the Buddha and the various teachings of the Buddha. Then there's another basket called the Abhidhamma. The Abhidhamma focuses on the various mental states of consciousness. So the Abhidhamma tries to actually standardize and measure what, where the monk or nun is in terms of their mental state. So it goes into first jhana, second jhana, third jhana, fourth jhana, etc. Um, so those are the kind of things that the Abhidhamma focuses on. I've read most of the suttas and Abhidhamma. The Abhidhamma is very technical in nature. The suttas are perhaps more teacherly, uh, if you want to learn some of the stories in there. So that's a brief understanding of Theravada Buddhism. And we could talk about some of the meditation practices in another uh, piece for now. Just note that the meditation practices are twofold. Uh, the first meditation practice of the Theravadan Buddhism is uh, simply a shamatha-type meditation. It's called something differently, but uh, the, the idea of being aware or being mindful of the breath. So that's number one, is shamatha, being mindful of the breath. So when you take an in-breath, you don't force it, you just... Take a natural in-breath, you watch the breath. You're mindful of the breath coming into you. And then when the breath leaves, you're mindful of it uh, leaving you. If you're taking a longer breath, because the more you meditate, you tend to take longer breaths. Uh, you watch that breath too. You watch the unfolding of the breath, watching its length, and then seeing it returning Moving from oxygen to carbon dioxide, you follow that particular uh, process. By following shamatha meditation, there is a sense that uh, you move beyond the um, thinking mind, the thinking brain. They'd, they'd say the mind, not the brain. 
and there's a sense that you move beyond the body and beyond space and time too when you get decent at these types of meditations. Another type of meditation would be called Vipassana meditation. These are the two types of meditations that Buddha is known for, or Buddhism is known for. Vipassana meditation is simply watching uh, the forms, the feelings, and the perceptions of the body, speech, and mind. Um, so when you start to think, you just recognize that you are thinking. You could label it as thinking if you like. Thinking, breathing, feeling, etc. But you would have to actually get direct instructions from a Theravadan practitioner to understand this in many ways. Um, the Theravadan does not they do not chant. They chant the the sutras, the suttas, but they do not chant mantras like uh, the Mahayana traditions and the Vajrayana traditions, an aspect of the Mahayana. So they're, they're not known for chanting. The Thai forest monks, which is kind of like a, um, kind of like a Theravadan tradition, they do chant Buddha, Boo for your in-breath and da or do, boo do for the out-breath. So they, they are spelling Buddha uh, in their chanting process. So they do use labels uh, in their chanting process to represent the in and out-breath. Once again, Vipassana can really move you beyond the elements of shamatha meditation, the in and out-breath meditation. Because you start looking at your mind, you look at your body, you look at all the feelings and perceptions uh, that are occurring in your body. And by that particular uh, situation, um, those forms, feelings, and perceptions do not have an effect on you anymore. They do not have a, as strong an impact on you anymore. Let's say you get angry and you label that anger as a feeling, then there's a sort of a distance between uh, you and the anger by labeling it a feeling. Uh, thus, you just watch the feeling. You watch the feeling, just like you watch the in and out breath. The feeling arises. Maybe it arises fairly strong. You watch that strong feeling arise, and over time, you watch that feeling disappear. Um, or reduce. That's what uh, the, the concept of meditation does. It allows you to work with these emotions, these feelings, these forms in a more um, natural way through your body, speech, and mind. And you're not reacting. You're not being impulsive. You're not being controlled by the, uh, the brain system, the limbic system, the, the various systems within your brain that that create the hormones for fight or flight syn syndrome. And so from a Western perspective, these types of meditation reduce your brain's reactivity and impulses. That's some of the Theravadan Buddhism. Uh, 
we can move now to Mahayana Buddhism. Mahayana Buddhism takes off in India. From the Mahayana perspective, the Buddha taught uh, different uh, individuals. He taught the Arhats of the Theravadan sects. Um, but there's a sense that uh, from the Mahayana tradition, he taught a different view, uh, a different audience, people with different uh, different skills. There's a sense that there are 84,000 different types of teaching uh, in Buddhism, and the Mahayana tradition follows another one. Uh, we have to recognize that the Mahayana term itself is a bit stereotypical he calls it Mahayana translates to the greater vehicle um, in many ways the greater vehicle is open to the community beyond the monks and beyond the nuns to be honest the Theravada tradition is open to the community monks and nuns can teach laypersons so the focus uh, for the Mahayana is that, it is that it's beyond the monks and nuns in the Sangha. There's a term in the, the text called Karuna, which means compassion. Compassion becomes just as significant as wisdom or bodhi. So the Mahayana tradition um, pushes the concept of compassion to liberate sentient beings, not necessarily at the same level as wisdom, because wisdom is the most highest level that one can attain, bodhi, uh, in the Mahayana and the Theravadan traditions. However, karuna, compassion, which is also in the Theravadan traditions, is very much a part of the, their, their presentation. Uh, so think about a boat in the water or a ship. Here is a quote. A guard I will be to them who have no protection. A guide to the voyager, a ship, a well, a spring, a bridge for the seeker of the other shore. The idea here is that we need to take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And we cannot do this by ourselves we do need teachers. We do need help. Uh, we cannot just go to the forest alone and seek liberation. Uh, we need some help, brother and sister. <laughs> um, so some of the Mahayana characteristics. Number one, anyone can achieve nirvana, not just the monks and nuns. Anyone can achieve nirvana. Number two, there's a reverence and deity worship of Buddha. Uh, there's a sense of worship. Uh, in fact, I've talked to Korean Buddhists and uh, they worship Buddha just like they, the Christians worship Jesus Christ. And there's a sense of a heaven and hell in that Korean Buddhist tradition. Not every Korean Buddhist believes that, but there is certainly a reverence and deity worship of the Buddha in the Mahayana tradition. In the Theravadan tradition, the Buddha is the, um, the teacher rather than uh, the God. 
So there's almost a deity worship in the Mahayana tradition. It really depends on who you ask. Um, ask a Mahayana what they believe. Most Mahayanas today won't necessarily say they worship the Buddha in the West, but if you go to the East, you're going to receive a different story. Um, number three, bodhisattvas. There are bodhisattvas. They are humans or celestial spirits who refrain from Buddhahood to help others achieve the same liberation. You have to ask yourself, is Jesus Christ a bodhisattva? We don't want to put Jesus in the framework of Buddhism because he has very different beliefs than Buddhas. But there is a sense of this idea of being a spirit or a human uh, who doesn't go straight to heaven, doesn't go straight to Buddhahood, but stays around to, to help people achieve salvation or liberation. They keep returning and returning and returning to help others uh, reach that particular uh, place. It's not really a place though, it's an ideal or an idea. Uh, so that's one, two, three, four. Enlightenment may happen in one lifetime. Instead of four lifetimes or 12 lifetimes, enlightenment can happen with a snap or three snaps. Uh, next, um, it's a, there's a large focus in the Mahayana tradition on rituals and ceremonies, particularly in the Vajrayana traditions, uh, less in the Zen traditions. So we have that sense of uh, ceremony played into the culture. We know that uh, culture impacts religion, and as the religion moves into a new culture, those ceremonies also take part of that particular culture. There's something called Pure Land Buddhism in the Mahayana tradition also. So some sects describe multiple heavens. They are not resting places that you go to forever, such as heaven in Islam and Christianity. Um, some sects describe what's called pure realms. There's a pure realm in, in uh, the various Buddhas, such as uh, Amitabha, the Lord of Measureless Light, the Buddha of Measureless Light. He has a pure realm called Sukhavati. And there's a lot of uh, pure land Buddhists who believe that if they worship Amitabha, if they're a good person, if they want to liberate other sentient beings and have good bodhicitta and have good ethics and conduct, that they will enter this pure realm after this death. And that Amitabha will continue to teach Buddhism and the other Buddhas will teach Buddhism to, to you. And you're actually born in a lotus flower, which is nice. And you have a new body, a golden body. And... Um, you start understanding a lot of uh, things uh, that the Buddha taught and you become a bodhisattva and you can emanate to different places and help sentient beings. That's a quick rundown of the Mahayana Buddhism. I have a few points about Vajrayana Buddhism. Vajrayana Buddhism is considered a third turning of the wheel of the Dharma. 
but I always keep it under Mahayana Buddhism that there is the Theravadan sects, there's the Mahayana sects, and Vajrayana, in my opinion, tends to be under the Mahayana sects, but the Vajrayana tends to place itself separately. Um, they certainly believe Vajrayana, by the way, means diamond vehicle, the diamond vehicle. Think of the diamond as your Buddha nature, this perfect diamond. That's your Buddha nature. So they have a belief in the Bodhisattva, obviously, like the Mahayana, and you can maintain, you can achieve enlightenment in one lifetime. Uh, from the Pure Land point of view, you achieve enlightenment in one lifetime by praying to Buddha Amitabha and doing what's desired there and then go to the pure land but the bodhisattva in the vajrayana tradition you can achieve enlightenment in one lifetime through particular meditation practices uh, some called uh, sadhanas where, where you become a deity and you visualize yourself as a deity a perfect being and then you also practice what's called zokshin Dzogchen meditation or the great perfection meditation or Mahamudra the great seal meditation uh, which focuses a lot on the concept of the non-dual reality of existence again the Vajrayana is mainly within the Himalayan region of uh, the geographical location so we're talking Nepal we're talking uh, Tibet we're talking uh, Bhutan and Mongolia Vajrayana did move a little bit to the, they had an interaction, I would say, with China. But for the most part, it, it maintained its uh, centrality in the Himalayan regions. In the Vajrayana, you have a guru. You have gurus in the Mahayana traditions, too. In Zen tradition, a guru is called a Roshi. In the Vajrayana, it's called a Lama. It's just different language. And I have a quote here that says, Enlightenment occurs through chanting of magical spells, special hand gestures, and mystical diagrams. If you practice the Mahayana, this sounds a little bit funny, to be honest. Uh, spells. They don't view themselves as, as chanting magical spells. But there are mantras that they um, chant. The mantra of compassion by Avalokiteshvara, which also exists in Chinese Buddhism uh, and in Pure Land Buddhism, is Om Mani Padme Hom. Again, that's Om Mani Padme Hom. Om Mani Padme Hom. That's the mantra of compassion. So if you're meditating and want to generate compassion in your heart, Om Mani Padme Hom is the mantra uh, that is used. There are many, many, many mantras in Vajrayana Buddhism and also in the Chinese Buddhism, the Mahayana traditions there. Hand gestures are called mudras. And the Buddha himself used mudras, the earth-touching mudra, for instance, to prove his enlightenment to the entire Mother Earth. So mudras are part of the Vajrayana tradition too. Um, you may see mandalas or mystical diagrams being painted uh, 
throughout the United States, um, Tibetan Buddhists will come and paint a mandala for a particular amount of time. And uh, then at the very end of creating the mandala, this beautiful palace, which is kind of like a pure realm, a beautiful, perfect, awakened state, a perfect place. Uh, then at the end, to symbolize the concept of impermanence, they wipe it clean, they erase it. So that's impermanence. Another thing that's uh, generally connected to Vajrayana Buddhism, but also Zen and other traditions, are these teachings between guru and student. There's a, there's a strong relationship that there are 84,000 te teachings and the guru understands exactly what the student needs. So they have special teachings and relationships between guru and student in order to uh, understand what their path is to achieve liberation. And of course, you know, probably the 14th Dalai Lama is the, uh, you know, kind of like the king of Tibet at one point, but now a, uh, an emanation of Avalokiteshvara, the Lord of Compassion. There are other sects within the Vajrayana tradition. Uh, the Karmakaju sect, for instance, they also have uh, the 16th and the 17th Karmapa, the various Karmapas, who also represent the Lord of Compassion, Avalokiteshvara. So the, the phrase, the, the mantra, Om Mani Padme Hom, is also connected not only to Avalokiteshvara, but also to the Dalai Lama and the, uh, the Karmapas. Uh, the Karmapas and the Dalai Lama are reincarnations, that they've reincarnated repeatedly over time to benefit uh, sentient beings. So there are a lot of reincarnations uh, in uh, Tibet and in other places to benefit sentient beings. That's the idea, is once you achieve a perfect uh, a state of enlightenment, you return to this earth or other earths or other places and help sentient beings be liberated. So that's a uh, quick rundown of the three uh, systems, uh, classifications of the uh, Buddhism, the Theravadan sect, the Mahayana sect, the Vajrayana sect. We could go into Chinese Buddhism, we could go into Zen traditions, Chan traditions, the Pure Land traditions as well separately, but for now this is a good place to stop. Thank you for listening.